0: Welcome to the New Habits Podcast, where executives and MVPs from Microsoft partners discuss the Microsoft Teams application and its use in enterprises.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to part three of the New Habits podcast uh, on knowledge management and project cortex. My name is Susie Dean, and I'm joined by our regular panel of Paul Schaeflein, Victor Velen, and Wes Hackett. And this week, we have uh, an extra special surprise for you um, with Susan Handley and Simon Denton joining us to share their experiences on the front line delivering knowledge management solutions uh, to customers. So, hello, everybody hello thank you for uh joining our podcast today Uh, i know that most of our listeners are going to be quarantined so uh best make this uh more interesting than arguing with a family member which i think is probably pretty high on everybody's uh lists of, of regular activities this week um Right, let's get straight to it. Simon, it would be really good if you could kick us off by telling us uh, all a little bit about yourself uh, and your role at Mott McDonald.
2: Yeah, hi. Yeah, thanks for having me this week. Uh, so, yeah, I'm Simon Denton. I'm the Productivity Applications Architect, which is quite a mouthful, uh, at Mott McDonald. We're uh, global consulting engineers, and I'm responsible for all things Microsoft 365 for 18,000 people in about 400 locations around the world. So, I guess that's my role in MOTS, and also what I do. My product history is I've not been in IT for particularly long. In fact, embarrassingly, I met Susan Hanley in Chicago, and I was, you know, bright-eyed, shameful, I got it to sign a book, I was embarrassed, and that was my first sort of journey into IT uh, back in Chicago in uh, 2015, so I've not been doing IT for very long, but I've been off and on, dipping in and out of knowledge management, because uh, managing knowledge is really, really important for the way we deliver construction uh, in the world today, so that's me.
1: Thank you very much for that. Um- Give us an overview. So you, you, you have been at McDonald's a long time. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I mean, just yes, yeah. It's audio or just video as well. So obviously, this hairline kind of reveals the fact that I have been around a little while. Uh, yep. Yeah, so I've been in construction since about 1998, which ages me a tiny bit.
1: And um, so when you sort of on the business side moved into IT, how have you seen? knowledge management conceptually and practically evolve within mott mcdonald what did it used to mean what does it mean today what's the journey that mott mcdonald have been on in terms of understanding their knowledge management needs uh, and the meeting of those needs in line with what's been made available from a technology standpoint
2: yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I guess like most organisations, we come from the really classic approach to knowledge management. It's it's who you know, who you can pick up the phone, who's going to answer the queries, are the are your sources of primary knowledge. So, we you know, McDonald, we are a knowledge based organisation. Our strapline, in fact, is creating opportunities through connected thinking. So we really do uh, value knowledge, but we really came from a background where it was who you knew. In the sectors you operated in and what you did before usually drove what you did in the future so we took a really really hard look at what we're doing in terms of our knowledge and what could differentiate us and we wanted to really break down those sort of cup of tea conversations you know you go to the kitchen you're go, oh, i've got this problem i don't know how to solve it and you bump into the right person at the right time you get that serendipitous discovery and you, you solve that problem there or then or you're making new contacts. We wanted to break down those barriers. We wanted to break down barriers around lines of service because like most organizations, you tend to fall into a vertical. If you've always been building bridges, you always go to people who build bridges. So if you've always been doing airports, you go always go to the same set of people. And we wanted to break that down because knowledge um really is a function around what you're interested in. And so we started to write developing horizontal layers through the organization and trying to get people to collaborate more. And the first thing I sort of did working with our global knowledge manager was we introduced Yammer. We introduced practice of community through Yammer and we brought groups together. So if I'm interested in Bridges, it doesn't matter if you're in accounting or teaching teachers to teach or whatever it is, if you're interested in Bridges, come and join the Bridges community. We started growing knowledge uh, in that way. And from there we started building SharePoint sites and I can I can go, go into details about how we created all these different
3: workflows. So well, for got, how long have you been doing this? For so how long you've been doing Jammer and SharePoint, etc.
2: Yeah, so that that journey, that part of history, I was about to, yeah, about to say that that is about four years, right? Of time and effort that's gone into that. We you know 2015 when I met Susan Hanley and I was just I was just having my mind blown by Microsoft at Ignite about all the things they did with knowledge and Wikipedias and all this kind of things that they offered promise and they're eventually starting to come through on. Um, that was later that year, we started running out Yammer and we started running out SharePoint and we started getting people involved and, uh, in knowledge management in in that way.
1: Thank you for that. Uh, one of the things that strikes me about knowledge management um, is that there are often good business drivers for it. You, you know, you've talked about needing to get around uh, knowing people uh, to get to the right source of information for the thing you're trying to do. Um, But the flip side is that um, most organizations don't manage knowledge uh, particularly um, effectively, uh, but they're still running and they're still functioning. So now that you've sort of been four years into your journey and you're using Yammer and you're using SharePoint sites to manage your knowledge. If we took that away tomorrow, where what are some of the pain points you think your employees would have? Where, where have you sort of um, been successful in creating uh, that framework that you talked about um, to the extent that it would be missed if it wasn't there?
2: Well, I think we would instantly regress the organisation to a state that it was five five plus years ago, right? And people would soon revert back to their networks of of knowledge, right? They might have a, a couple of other people in their go to list now as a result of our work and a, a couple of other bits of information, but effectively you would regress the the, the organisation. Uh, for organisations that don't have it, and I know uh, loads and loads of you know people don't and they still survive, which is your point. So why do it? I guess I guess the question is, do you want to keep doing this, the same thing you're doing in the same way that you're doing? Or do you want to innovate and grow and succeed and get excitement and get all these other things from from what you do? And one of the ways you do that is by mining the knowledge you've got and building on the knowledge that you have to do something differently in the future. And I guess that's it's quite a... It's uh, quite a journey to go on, but it's you know it's worth doing. So what
1: you're describing is a sort of elevation uh, of work and activity where, because you've, you've handled that baseline, you're able to look at more, meeting more sophisticated needs. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think the needs started quite simplistic, right? I can give you an example where people were posting bridges and bridges. And again, how many of these are, do you think there are in the world, right? And then we were getting quite a few replies. Oh yeah, there's a few of these, a few of those there. And now we're getting posts of, you know, what is this? And it's a blurry picture of a valve, which acts at the bottom of a reservoir. And and you know, what is this? And you know, people are saying, well, this is one of these, this is the manual, this is where I found these things. You're getting all this level of detail and effort around the knowledge that you wouldn't, we didn't get in the first days because people are showing the, the broader questions about right? you. Know, what is this? It's a bridge. Yes, it's a truss and little bits and pieces, but now they're like, what is this thing specifically? How do I use it? How can I reuse it? How can I maintain it and how can I repair it? So um, yeah. I think we would. I think we would really suffer if you took all that way.
1: So, with with the work that you've been doing, I'm, I'm particularly interested because you started with Yammer, and um, I didn't expect you to start talking about Yammer, but you have, and so I feel inclined to ask you how you've managed or do you manage that relationship or the difference between content and knowledge. Um, there can be lots of talk within uh, communities about how something should be done, or Um, the the way things have been done or, or, you know, the repetition or the sharing of practices that don't necessarily conform to the way your organization would want them done or uh, done at their best. How do you manage that difference between content and knowledge or or don't you?
2: Well, first of all, there is no difference between content and knowledge. I think that's quite an important bit. All content contains knowledge, doesn't matter what it is, right? Um, So the first thing we do is we don't have that differentiator. The second thing is we do uh, loosely uh, rank our knowledge into sort of a bronze, silver and gold process. And we have a very simple process around that. Anyone can share knowledge within Mott McDonald's and we've given them tools to do that. Actions in SharePoint to publish this information, conversations in Yammer where they can have it. All that is typically the bronze standard. This is good knowledge. Yeah, it's people willing to share it. they probably vetted it and they've gone through probably some approval process to make sure it's it's good to share. And then each community and each practice within Yama, they have a they have a role of uh, vetting, curating, uh, cajoling conversations around those knowledge assets. And taking those knowledge assets on. And once those organize it, you know, those groups do that, then they elevate those pieces of knowledge up to silver and gold, ultimately gold standard knowledge we can share. That. So
1: who so who uh, who decides what's bronze, silver or gold?
2: So bronze bronze is given, it's a given. You share the knowledge, it's sort of the lowest level, it's bronze you've won the bronze medal effectively. The communities decide whether they want to take that knowledge on and augment it. Right, and add to it. So, for example, you might share a specification on how to paint a wall, right? And it may be very specific because it's going to a particular wall type, a particular type of paint. What that community might do is then change the wording within that body of knowledge, say, actually to make it more generic, and that might promote it up to being silver. Now, the company might take it then. The global knowledge management community might then take that bit of knowledge and say, actually, this is the way you should paint a wall going forward, right? Right. And that is the top tier gold standard intranet grade knowledge that they, they take up and they'll publish that more widely and circulate more widely. So that's how you use that ranking system. The first ones is very much community driven and then it's taken on and people own it. And we make sure every piece of knowledge has an owner. And then that way we can promote it and keep it.
1: So I think that is such a great model to, to Uh, allow the business as a whole to understand when something is a practice that should be followed versus a conversation that might be happening between uh, peers. Susan, I'd love to draw you in on that question of uh, how, in your experience, um, uh, sort of general chat and content has been distinguished from best practices. Perhaps uh, before you answer, you can give us a quick introduction to see what – I mean, the woman needs no introduction, but for those that perhaps don't know, oh, uh, Simon is bowing um, for anyone that's listening to this on Podbean and can't see. Um, so uh, start with kicking, kicking us off with uh, – who you are and uh, your sort of uh, life in, in knowledge management and then it would be wonderful to have your thoughts on the question of
4: content versus knowledge. Sure. Um, so I'm Sue Hanley. I'm a business analyst and information architect uh, based outside of Washington, D.C. in the U.S. And I have now I've for the last 15 years, I've had an independent consulting practice. Prior to that, I ran the portal and collaboration practice for Dell. And right before that, um, I was the director of knowledge management at a global consulting firm. And that was a role that was really created for me and that I um, sort of ran and, you know, established and ran that program for five years until I moved on to just focus on consulting. So I've been in this knowledge management world for a really, really long time. Um, and sort of part of those initial organizations that we're trying to figure out, how do we share the knowledge that we have globally? Because we know that we've done that activity somewhere in the world. And how do we make sure that we are not reinventing the wheel? Because actually, to me, the biggest benefit for investing in knowledge management Is driving your business forward, being able to be more profitable, do more with less, and take advantage of the knowledge that you have in your network. Your customers, suppliers, partners, and employees all have significant um, information and knowledge to share. We just need to get it to the right people in the right format uh, at the right time. So I've basically spent the last, you know, since the mid nineties in my career focused on how you do that.
1: Susan, it would be great to get your uh, thoughts on how... You have, when you've worked with organizations, made that distinction between um, content and knowledge, content being things that people might say about how things should be done, and knowledge really being an organization's gold standard
4: in terms of how they really want things to be done. Yeah, I'm not sure I totally make that distinction. So content is a form of information. It doesn't turn into knowledge until someone does something with it. A human is required for that to happen. And so I think it's a little naive to think that we can do all of that with technology alone. Um, uh, you know, humans exchange knowledge by storytelling. Oftentimes it is easier to do that in voice and video than it is in content that is written down, which is why sort of the whole knowledge, you know, knowledge transfer has to take place in multiple dimensions. And we need to create opportunities for people to have conversation. And a lot of knowledge management is about bringing the right people together at the right time. So a fundamental element in this whole content knowledge thing to me, especially in a global organization is expertise location. I have a problem. I need to find someone who can solve that problem. How do you connect me to the right person at the right time? I can infer based on what people are writing about and and posting online what their area of expertise is. And then I'm going to want to talk to them because it's very easy to get that first question uh, maybe in a chat, but maybe you also then need to have a more in-depth conversation with the person so that you can say, well, this is what I'm seeing. How does that connect to your experience? And the sooner we can bring those conversations, make those conversations happen, uh, the better off we are.
1: I love that uh sense that there's people there's location there's are you doing it on video is it written down somewhere I think that really paints a, a great picture of um, where these moments are happening that that somebody would need something from somebody else the the starting point that lots of organizations find themselves in um it, it is a much sadder picture where they often have a very out-of-date intranet, multiple versions of documents. Um, they may be using some sort of um, video conferencing and where uh, we'll, we'll come on later to, to the latest technologies and what's possible um, that, that, you know, the basic information they might have about how something's done or who the right person is to talk to is, is so poorly out of date um, that, that they're not they're not even at the level that, that you have described. So they've got a lot of content and no real um, sort of intelligence uh, about how their business should be ran.
0: And there's many vendors telling them that they can click a magic button and it'll automatically happen for them, right? So, I, I, how many <laughs> times do we hear that? So, you know, Microsoft has done it in the past, and I guess we've all fallen into that belief, right? But I, what I'm hearing from the two experts is that you still need to get the humans involved in it to have some discipline to monitor and, and well, set a and goal you and move about, toward that you goal. Yeah?
4: Out of date intranets. There is no magic, give me an intranet button. I don't <laughs> care what. There is no internet in a box. You can't open it and have an internet. Uh, you still have to understand what is important to our business. How do we measure success in our business? What do our leaders care about? And where are our business pain points? Because you're never going to do it all at once. And you have to sort of start with something manageable where you can demonstrate a return in this investment in, let's call it squishier technology, um, in order to um, make things happen in a way that someone will say, yes, I can see where this is adding value to our organization.
1: I I think that is just a, a killer, killer point that you may well have bought some technology But unless you've got the sort of investment that Simon talked about where there are levels of people making decisions about content, uh, willing leadership that's prepared to share the organization's goals, um, you're not going to have the content there, the knowledge there um, to to be managed in the first place. And certainly, I think, whether certain projects we've done, whether you're looking at um, collaboration and new ways of working, intranet, knowledge, um, uh, you know, Even actually, a lot of the new power platform uh, capabilities that could be developed into a business service, uh, unless you've got that crucial mix of leadership buy-in, good quality content, uh, the technology can do very little on its own. Simon's frantically disagreeing, so I'm going to throw it to him. (laughs) (laughs) Go on,
2: get stuck in. Because, because honestly, you've fallen into what I feel is a classic trap. Right? Is that knowledge management is expensive. Knowledge management is hard. It's hard and expensive, and therefore we're not going to do it, right? And it's the classic trap. It's not, right? So it's about connecting people to content, content to people. We've been doing this since the dawn of time, right? We have been talking to people. We've been sharing things. So you can start really simple and for free, right? The knowledge network that we have at McDonald's, is not staffed by 60 permanent employees whose day job, all they have to do is manage knowledge. No. The cajoling of conversations to foster knowledge and review of knowledge is something they do above and beyond what they do in their day job, right? And, you know, we just ask them, can you contribute? Because people actually get pride in doing what they do and growing and getting better, right? And I know it's a bit altruistic that some people will do this stuff for free, but actually people do and especially engineers we actually love being able to touch something and say hey i made that that's really great. Um,
4: I I don't think I meant to say that it was hard because it's actually not, but you do have to focus and decide what's important. And at the fun, and what makes an organization like yours and the organizations like mine where I worked um, fundamentally different is culture and that we have a culture of knowledge sharing. In fact, where I worked, it was built into our DNA. You couldn't get the promotion to senior principal without demonstrating what we called leverage. And that was all about demonstrating how you are sharing your knowledge with other people. built into our DNA. So getting people to contribute and share their expertise was not an issue. In the organizations that I've worked with as a consultant, however, that is not always the case. Not every organization has a culture that allows you to actually comfortably ask a question and admit that you do not know something. Of course, if you ask someone, they will tell one-on-one, they will give you an answer. But not every organization has a culture that says, I'll post my answer my knowledge, my area of expertise freely, um, because I know that we, that I can make a mistake, that that's totally culturally acceptable. And I think, um, that when I see a ba- when I see people not successful with their small initiatives, and I agree, you can 100% start small and people want to help each other. And I think that is, it's, na- that is human nature. It's how we are, but you also have to be allowed Um, You have to work in an environment that rewards reuse as much as innovation and where people get credit for sharing in the sense that that is part of how they're measured and evaluated. And when you don't have that fundamental, it is not that it's impossible because it is still possible, but it is so much easier if the culture is aligned towards those expectations. 100% 100%
3: degree on the sort of culture piece there, but and also it might not always be hard, but it might be harder in some organizations. Uh, so for instance, I work at a global company, we have a lot of time zones, uh, a lot of people, I would say a lot of different cultures within this company. So that is quite hard to align all of that, those kind of things. But also, and one thing I see sort of this uh, gig economy we have a lot of uh, under consultants and people coming in and doing, they're expert in their area, they're coming in and doing their stuff for four or five, six months, and then they're leaving, and they're leaving with the knowledge as well. So, how can we preserve those kind of knowledge and, and ensure that we can keep that within our company, within our project, within our products and services and whatnot?
1: I'm quite interested to, uh, to, to come come back as uh, as well. Um, when Susan sort of made the point that um, it takes uh, people to produce information, leadership by in to, to be prepared to share their goals. And, um, you know, that's certainly a core part of uh, knowledge management. And um, Simon sort of said, well, it, it's a common myth that these things are expensive and hard and therefore, uh, you know, pe- people aren't going to do them. Um, I, th- I think actually we've sort of seen certainly I've only ever been on the consulting side rather than within an organization that's um, uh, doing it doing it well or, or badly for that matter um, but certainly the thing that that I see is that people organizations are happy to pay so it's not necessarily the expense part um, that that they take issue with they, they Understand, there's a level of work there because they're they're, they're paying for for effort to go in, um, but the bit where it means. Um, they need to change, or there's an impetus on the the culture of the organisation. Uh, to Susan's point about the way people are um, uh, remunerated, or uh, the, the the sort of stage that's being set for the programme of work by the leadership, um, that's not always there. And it's um, uh, we we actually uh, do something at in three hundred and sixty five where we put in something called a frustration fee when we do projects um, for exactly where. Um, Um, There is uh, the money, there is some effort, they're prepared to do it, but actually the bit where they might have to change a bit um, that, that they're much less willing to do, and I and I do think that a key part of the knowledge management discussion, and you know, why aren't we further along than we are in in March 2020, is is down to that um, the self improvement element that isn't always there, and it's so lovely to hear Simon that you're in an organisation where there's a huge amount of pride in doing that, um, but uh, but I'm, i I'm 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 not sure it's there in every single business.
2: I, th- I think it, I think the challenge is that you know people apart from people think this is hard, right? People will take knowledge management and put an ROI calculation against it, right? A really blunt: how much effort do I put in, how much do I get back, right? And a lot of the time, when you discover knowledge and reuse knowledge it's really hard to put a tangible value on it something that's real that converts into you know to pounds right it could be something that helps you do something right and it helps you move on helps you tell a story in a different way it helps you convince a customer to do something differently helps you solve a problem in a slightly unique way but when you've got someone looking at, you I've got to, I've got to invest in knowledge management. I've got to put effort in. I've got people. I've got to change our culture. Do all this," they put an ROI calculation on the end of it, and it's really hard to make these things snack. And so they they just kind of back away and take that, take that. Oh, no, I can't make this work. And then you get asked about all oh, metrics. How are we going to measure these these, you know, our knowledge? How what we've done? And you're like, okay, right. Uh, what we do? The number of documents shared. Mm. That's just, what's that's, the panel's that's view you... on
1: metrics i'm a massive fan um but uh let's let's ask you victor wes what's your view on uh, metrics and how we might measure the success or, or the or the meaningfulness of our knowledge management
5: well i, I think the uh Metrics can tell generally whatever story you want them to tell. Like any statistic, you can spin a good or a bad story around a statistic. Um, You know, the 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 favourite from Microsoft is monthly active usage, meaning adoption. And um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't agree that that's a metric worth. Tracking because turning something on and putting on a desktop so it auto launches doesn't mean that a business user is finding value in using that. And I think that's that's to Simon's point, uh, 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 quite important is you know what is the value and is it as easy as putting a hard number of pounds or dollars against something versus you know is is using that capability and and having a culture that allows sharing and ideation and um, is open to um, trying things and failing and trying things again, going to entice people to work there longer and therefore add more intrinsic value to the organization, I'd argue absolutely. Um, some of the highest performing organizations have a very good supportive culture around failure. They, they deal with it in a professional and a uh, and a a creative manner. It's not seen as as something to be ashamed of. It's seen as you try to push things forward. It didn't quite go the way you wanted it, uh, you know. And pick yourself up and get on. So I think I think metrics have to be thought about in, in in quite a broad sense, as well as the microcosm of you know we have our service. We see six people use it every thirty seconds you know monthly active usage i think there's 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 a big picture that often gets overlooked for the easy to grab you know i've got a report that's delivered to me already from 365 therefore it must be a good thing that i've seen a hockey stick of a, of of files that have gone into 365 in the last few weeks does that mean that anyone's using those files or does that mean they're just on a different storage mechanism you know it's it's a very very tricky area i think for many organizations to get proper insights into
4: can I uh, I have to jump in here. I know you asked Victor this question but I um I did some really important work on this subject. I this is something I've been in for a really really long time and back in on um, that very fateful September 11th. Um, in 2001, I was actually at a conference presenting the work I had done for the US Navy about measuring the value of investments in knowledge management. And I'll just give you one really important technique. Knowledge management is not like other things that you should be looking at that. It's not like, oh, we're going to do a new accounts payable system, and then therefore we're going to save X number of minutes per month. But there are really good ways to look at the value of the investments that you are making. Uh, one of which is to understand what the business problems are and sort of how what you you are trying to solve, but the way, one easy way, I'll just give you a name for it, to collect those metrics is something that I call serious anecdote management. And by that, I mean, um, you need to collect stories from the actor, whoever was involved, saying what they did, what they used, what resources they leveraged and what their outcome was. And they tell you what the measure was. And when we were doing a really interesting, let's call it in a, one of the very earliest expertise identification technologies uh, for a pharmaceutical, we collected um, serious anecdotes from A small number of pilot participants. That in the middle of presenting this to the finance committee, um, they said we had already shown about um, four to five million dollars worth of value in like three stories. They're like, I don't even know why we're talking about this. This is so much more valuable than all the other things that we're doing. Let we'll give you the rest of the money so you can roll out the pilot. So the idea is um, to collect these stories. So at my organization, we gave out the way we collected the stories was we um, offered a prize. We called it the the Knowledge in Action Award. And we gave people a gift card for just telling us their stories. And um, we you know, sent out our information saying, tell us how you used our assets and what they did for you. Were you able to get a new client because you were able to start with a proposal that already existed? Were you able to change what you were doing in a fixed price project because you were able to borrow from another, you know, assets from another project and then extend that to create a delighted a customer and what do you measure? How do you measure that value? And with um, 18 stories, we collected $20 million worth of value. And the investment in my team was a fraction of that. So
3: I 100% agree with you there, Sue. And then we're doing sort of being a consultant company the assets we have the knowledge we have that's all yeah, that's our uh, ip sort of and we developed sort of the same kind of method uh, but also using some the Of course, it has to be KPIs. We're a consultant company. So there has to be KPIs. And what we're measuring is sort of how these assets or the knowledge or the stories, depending on how you put it, are are being used. Uh, So in what kind of case are being used? How many people are using them? And of course, that is, as you mentioned previous as well, that is actually coming back to our performance review, our annual review. How how well do you perform? I produce these kind of assets this year, and they've been used this much. We even have sort of a leaderboard. are the top used assets, etc.? And also, going back to what you said, Simon, about the bronze, silver, and gold. Some of these assets are essentially, we're not using the same kind of tiers, but they are sort of measured up since they are used that much. They are sort of the gold tier. These are our go to assets to knowledge, and those are being more curated and maintained as well. And, and we, we have a whole process for sunsetting that, that kind of information. So, yes, though, although we don't have strict KPIs that you mentioned, whereas with the monthly active use, etc., et but the popularity of reusing those assets and those persons and individuals creating those or teams creating those assets as well of course they they get something back for that in in different kind of shapes and forms as well
1: Thank you very much for that Um, Simon I'm interested to hear about some of the challenges that you had um, when you sort of set up your network Um, whether that's uh, the the sort of practicalities of um, establishing the Yammer communities and the SharePoint sites or whether it was more uh, or, or and uh, also um, challenges that you had with establishing your sort of silver and gold ranking of content.
2: Yeah, uh, we, we sort of eased our way into it into the process, right? And we we identified pretty early on that storytelling was the main way, right? So we started small. We just started some Yammer communities, and we focused on a couple of um, areas of our organization where people were interested where people are interested in knowledge and the reuse of knowledge. So very straightforward, we set up some communities and some leaders emerged within those communities who fostered and controlled the the communications and what was happening. So we sort of promoted them up a little bit and made them the owners of those knowledge communities. And that kind of helped them get a bit of reward and a bit of recognition from that. And we sort sort of grew out from there. The hard thing was... To get the organization to define outside of that small air bubble of we're really interested in this stuff, what are the other things that we're really interested in, right? What are the things that matter most to us? And we we distilled it down to 60 areas over about three months. We're you know, quite a diverse organization. We asked everyone in each of those areas, give us 10 terms that describe those areas of interest, right? About a thousand, two thousand terms per area of interest came back. Right, that's you know you have to kind of whittle all of that down to what topics and terms really resonate and align with those groups. Because at the end of the day, you're trying to connect people to content and content to people. You want some really, really crystal clear definitions. So that was quite hard. Um, We had to kind of take the bull by the horns a bit and and actually say, actually stop generating lists. We'll, We'll we'll start taking it from here. Um, so that was the first hard step to get through and get through those things. And I'm, I'm pretty sure there's some really good assistive technology in the pipeline that's going to help with that suggestion process, right? I think that's going to be really great. Um, the next hard bit was getting people to share things outside of bound normal security boundaries, right? So your knowledge boundary is your organization, but your security project boundary is the project of work that you're on or a piece of work you're doing, right? And what people are reluctant to do is, oh, well, my customer says I can't share this, even internally? Or what happens if someone takes my design and uses it inappropriately and puts it on something else and it falls down in a horrible way? So the next big hurdle we had to get over was encouraging our leadership to be confident that these things were not going to be misused when shared, right? That knowledge wouldn't be misused when shared. And that took a little bit. We've had some interesting conversations around that with, with leaders who were frightened by the knocks on the door by you know by various police authorities saying actually you know someone's usual thing in a bad way. Um, but once we've got through that process, it was quite easy then. The the Yammer conversations were going, we set some things up in SharePoint time just to just enable that sharing process to make it a bit easier. So we recognize once we said, okay, share it with approval, let's give someone a mechanism to do that. And actually, It kind of grew organically from there. So the blockers are confidence to share, sharing the right thing, approval to share, and actually defining what your topics and the areas of interest really are. Once you kind of overcome that, it becomes quite organic from there.
1: (laughs) And Sue, what are the biggest mistakes you see people making um, from the outside in, if you like, from the consulting perspective?
4: Um, well, you know, I really think the biggest mistake people make is assuming that technology is going to solve your knowledge management problems. Uh, technology is a big part of it, obviously, because it's so much easier to make these connections when we have um, uh, tools that allow us to do uh, to connect with people all over the organization all over the world. It's not going to guarantee your success, however, without processes and culture and people to go along with it. And so knowledge management is more than just installing a product. It's really focusing on those other things as well.
1: In terms of uh, sort of perceptions of best practice, uh, and I say perceptions because at, at any given time, if you go to an industry conference uh, about knowledge management, people will be raving about a certain way of doing things or a certain application that's that's really helpful. Um, in terms of your perceptions of best practice, how have you seen that change? Um, you've talked a moment ago about success being much broader than the technology itself. Is that um, a best practice that, that you see people are sort of internalizing now and understand? Or do you still see a lot of the knowledge management ecosystem looking for that quick fix?
4: Um, You know, I guess it kind of depends. I think most organizations that are sort of focused on this understand that it's not going to be a quick fix. And then they need to start with something that's going to give them some Benefit overall. I think it's really telling that uh, Simon started with Yammer Communities of Practice, because in fact that's a very easy thing to do. We were doing that 25 years ago before we even had great conversation spaces. So my first foray into communities of practice leveraged this ancient technology called Lotus Notes. And that was about the best that we had. And yeah, Simon's making a big face. So um, but hey, you know, the whole we also leverage things like, oh, face-to-face meetings, um, which are a little harder to do these days. But look, now we have this great technology to meet over video. So I I think the important thing um, is to figure out, find something that you can do and introduce into your organization that is accomplishable, something that will show you some measurable value quickly. And there are already natural communities um, all over every organization. And the idea, I think, by starting with Yammer, what Simon was able to do was give that those natural communities a place, a sense, a, a place for conversation, a place for sharing assets and a place to connect. And I think looking for those opportunities are real sort of a really that's a great best practices, find an opportunity to create those, uh, to leverage what you already have and take it broad, Take it more broadly using the great technologies.
0: You, you know, so that, that kind of leads me to the next question. Yes, there's a natural community. And and so let's say the two or three developers who are working on something have their natural community and they may not be the extroverted type. And so sharing what they're doing doesn't occur to them naturally, right? So how, how does someone who's in a knowledge management role find these communities and, and get them to share? Is that a... a you know, I guess, you know, do you just butt in or what, what tips do you have for in that yes. regard? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just like that. You
2: butt in. No, um that's a good point, right? Because organizations, you know, you can define the verticals, right? And I talked about how, you know, our struggles defining the verticals, but also you miss the pockets of interest, right? You you miss the pockets of the three developers who've been doing something really cool with adaptive technology or something, and they've been talking, but they're not really willing to share it. That's where community management really comes in. If you're using a community-based platform, whichever one it is, you're probably going to get some good insight into what is happening within that community and to start looking and drilling into why is there so much activity over here, right? Why are they telling some good stories? And... Be bold enough to kind of butt in right and say, actually, no, this is great, this is cool stuff. People like that anyway, right? Ultimately, someone getting a thumbs up, pat on the back, and then amplifying it from there.
4: So I was just gonna say, so, so those people, we know that we have those people who aren't sort of sharing outside. And it's not that they're not willing, it's that you haven't asked them. And and because you're describing a little bit about their personality, someone knows them, right? And so we can use our communities to figure out who knows what, even if those people haven't shared. So the people who are asking the questions, people who are answering those questions might know of those people. And then what we have to do is give them an invitation, give them an opportunity to share, maybe in a way that's a little more comfortable for them. Ask them, will they do a webinar where they talk about what they're doing, Uh, record the webinar, post it to stream. You're now going to have a transcript. It'll be immediately searchable. All these things that that were impossible to do 25 years ago are really possible today. And we can allow people to share in a way that is comfortable for them and then make that asset available in a way that is comfortable on the recipient side in a variety of different ways. And so because someone is going to know about that cool pocket of work, I don't need all of those people to be in there right in the beginning. However, there is one thing that we can all do in all of our organizations. I mean, we have a place for people to record what their areas of expertise are in their profile. At my organization, sort of way before Office 365, we basically said, if you, we had an, a who knows what, database. It was called the Who Knows About Database. And our idea was, if you're working here and we're paying you and you don't have at least three skill sets, three areas of expertise that we can take advantage of, why are we paying you? So we made it part of the annual performance review that you had to update your You don't have to list every single possible thing that you know, but tell us three things that you're working on or that you know about and the degree to which you know them. Like, are you, is it an emerging technology? Well, you don't really have to know everything about it to say, hey, I'm working on this. But what about something that you can teach? Well, yeah, that really means you know it. And we didn't ask for things like Microsoft Word, I think, unless you're the world's greatest expert in that technology, declare those the kind of things, um, even if you're sure they're not particularly useful, the things that you know about are working on or could educate others. And that really helps Mm -hmm. in terms of sharing expertise and contributing to knowledge. sorry.
2: Sorry, sorry. So yeah, you know what? We stole that idea, (laughs) and so uh, we we, that that's a really good point. So what we did, you know, SharePoint and has profiles, right, and other services have profiles. So we we encouraged people initially voluntarily to list the at least three things that they were interested in, right? Based on our fledgling taxonomy of topics and terms. <laughs> you see what we're doing here, right? And then uh, we then got them to rate themselves on a scale of I'm just interested to the, I'm the world expert on a scale of one to five. And we stored all that against their profile. And then we took that information and then automatically joined them to the relevant communities, right? And started to make those connections from people to content, content and people. And that's not a difficult sort of step to do, time consuming or even expensive effort wise. Yeah. And that starting to make those joins and get those definitions going starts pulling people and content and content to people together much faster than the sort of organic looking through oh i can see this group there they're talking and fostering it from there so yeah, we borrowed that idea and put it gave it some steroids
1: Thank you very much for that um, story. I think it's probably a useful uh, point at which we can turn to uh, the technology that's available. I think um, for many of our listeners, when they hear the words knowledge management, they probably think of metadata uh, and requests coming from central IT to tag content. If we think about older versions of SharePoint, Um, one of the ways that knowledge would be managed is through metadata and tagging. Um, How have we sort of evolved beyond that? You've talked a little bit yourself and Simon about communities and asking people what they're good at and then getting those people into those communities to start um, sort of centralizing some of that collective IP. Um, But what else can we expect or what's available today or coming that could help knowledge management practitioners treading very carefully, of course, um, as they embark
4: on their journeys. So, So two things. So things that are available today. So search. So let's not forget that search is going to find your content as long as the term is somewhere in that asset. And so we often assume that we have to tag things to death. And Let me just tell you, that is a uh, um, uh, that is a road to failure because people hate metadata, even though I would like to say as an information architect that it's part of the grammar of a document. If you spend all this time writing it, you should spend a teeny bit of time tagging it. However, if you ask people for 50 tags every time they contribute to your knowledge base, they are going to go away. You have three seconds of their attention when they're putting their t- uh, content in, and you'd better make it very, very easy if you're going to ask them to tag. But you know, you could also ask someone who um, later to tag, although the author of the content probably is going to know the best about that. Uh, But I think sort of in the idea of what's coming, we also have emerging um, artificial intelligence and machine learning to auto tag content based on context, based on semantic, semantics, based on the interpretation of language. We have the opportunity um, with Project Cortex and initiatives like that to uh, train Uh, the machine learning capability to recognize patterns and uh, content uh, in documents and other assets so that we don't need to harm any humans in the process of tagging. And all of that information just makes search even better.
1: Simon, you've recently had some experience uh, with this level of uh, sort of automated um, content tagging, uh, to put it in, in very uh, sort of uh, noddy terms. How, how have you found the whole process?
2: Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, to, to Susan's point there, tagging's painful. It just. Ask them to tag more than three things and it ain't going to happen, right? So there's, you've, you've, got to, you've got to make the experience as frictionless as possible. And I think we've, we have had rules-based classification engines that are out there that take a rule. Uh, if the document contains the word concrete more than 17 times, tag it with the word concrete, right? And we've had rules-based systems that have had a degree of fuzzy matching, fuzzy logics and formative AI, if I'm being kind, uh, which will start processing and adding tags and lowering the level of friction to tagging, right? But there's some, yeah, there is some shiny new tech on the horizon, which takes us to the next level about suggesting the topics, because things that have happened to date, either manual tagging or rules-based tagging, kind of require you to have a taxonomy to kind of work from to start with, right? You've got to have some definitions to go with, Actually, a lot of organizations don't know what their taxonomy is if they're perfectly honest. And so they need some suggestions. And so suggested tags. What if we tag it with this? Would that describe it accurately and get some feedback from this? Actually, I've tagged it with concrete. Are you sure? Is that the right thing? Most people find it much easier to like something and say, actually, that's right, or thumbs down, that's wrong, as a methodology of rating something. And that's our experience with. You know, when working with Project Cortex. Is we found people have found it much, much easier to take the suggestions and either ac- accept the suggestions as good suggestions or downvote them. And say, actually, that's probably not the right suggestion. Go away and learn a bit more and then come back and tell me when you've got the right sort of topic and term, right? I think that's that's the important thing. And that's our experience today. And also looking at the sort of the next layer up. And we've talked about the importance of people and people and content and the curation of content, right? And that's the next level up. All these all these technologies are assistive, right? A human tags something, they've suggested they are the right tags. A rules-based system has tagged something. It suggested they're the right tax. AI is tax. I mean, it suggested they are the right tax, right? You still need someone to eyeball it in and go, they are the right tags, right? And curate those things in. And that's the experience we've seen with Cortex. That sort of curation layer is building up, it's growing. And it, I think that's what one of the big key differentiators is how that curation is performed in the, you know, the least sort of friction way.
1: So it sounds like um, Project Cortex uh, could potentially lower the bar to entry um, when it comes to knowledge management, because to your point, um, there's not A prerequisite of having some sort of taxonomy already in place. And uh, Project Cortex is sort of proactively suggesting um, what a a document or a tag could be rather than asking people uh, or expecting people off the bat to do that thinking themselves.
0: But there's a risk, I think, that maybe it makes it worse. If the AI model isn't trained to your business, you may get a lot of suggestions that aren't relevant and now people lose confidence. And so now it's a bigger hill to get over to force them to train the model to get those improvements. So I think there's a risk there to make sure you, you as you roll these things out, teach people what the suggestions are, how they get there and what they can do to help make them better.
4: I think that's why it's a combination, don't you think? Because, I mean, actually, organizations probably do have a taxonomy. They just might not have written it down. And it's a matter of identifying what are our top projects? What are our top initiatives? What are the top disciplines? And um, one of the ways I think you can prep that Microsoft has been telling organizations to prep for Project Cortex is to start defining what those key things that you care about are and setting them up in your managed metadata so that there's a starting point. It's a combination of what you discover and what you already know that will create exactly that will solve, I think, the issue that you are raising, Paul, that you don't want it to be 100% random, but you also can't possibly curate everything in advance.
2: You, you shouldn't expect to. It's about building confidence, right? It's about, right. about confidence in the system is doing what you want, right? You, you don't big bang this stuff, right? You didn't <laughs> big bang your rules engine either before that, and you probably didn't. Big bang your manual tagging, right? Or even you're rolling out of your Yammer groups, or Microsoft Teams, or Slack, or whatever it is. You know, big bang stuff. Big bang is a recipe for a big bang in
0: a bad way. <laughs> but many and people so, aren't going to want to do that. I, I mean, those of us listening are sure on that. But yeah, so get it the word out. You can't. It's not a. It's not a. What's that uh, box that you called it, Susan? Right.
2: <laughs> so, 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 yeah, so you just turn it on. A little bit, you get confidence. How are you doing? It? Get organisational confidence in what the system is doing matches what you what you're expecting or your expectations are. Right? Build that confidence level up. As a confidence level builds, you start opening its wide, reach wider and wider and wider. And if you don't start keep giving it feedback, it's just going to keep suggesting in the way it's going to suggest, right? And educate people the difference between the suggestion and the actual fact. And then you should be okay from there.
1: And uh, Victor, where's, what are some of your recommendations as to how an organization could start to prepare for Project Cortex today?
3: So first of all, uh, get to the cloud, get to Office 365. That's where you will start with Project Cortex. You need to have your information up there, uh, at least in version one of what we've seen uh, of Project Cortex. But having it in 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 OneDrive, in SharePoint Online, and as both Simon and Sue said, sort of get your at least foundational kind of uh, taxonomy together, so you have something to start with. But then also, I don't think you should expect this is something a flip you just flip on, then you have all your knowledge management <laughs> sorted out. It's not gonna be some magic thing, and that just fixes everything. It's gonna be hard work from your side. You need to validate. You need to to work with that information, etc of course if you do that and curate that information you will get better results in the end so it's not something that will sort your problems, it will help you get a better organisation of your content assets and people
1: I think my own recommendation would be uh, that organisations should understand what they want to get out of collecting that knowledge Um, collation for its own sake, particularly if a company starting from a position where they haven't really done any knowledge management um, can feel a little bit and can be a little bit directionless. So understanding what's the thing in the business we want to improve to meet which business goal, uh, and then working behind that will help everybody involved feel like they're achieving something tangible and useful for the organization. Um, we've ran into some very interesting organizations that um, have put a lot of work into knowledge management. um, But fundamentally, the executive team are saying, yes, we know we're spending on that. We're not quite sure what the point of it is yet. Uh, And that's because where the the knowledge is there, it's perhaps not been um, so definitively mined for for an end goal. Uh, And of course, the application of knowledge is a very powerful thing when it's uh, done right. So, Thank you, Susan and Simon, for joining us today. Any final thoughts? If somebody is going to start their knowledge management project on Monday,
4: what would you? What advice would you give them? I have an idea. I'm not just going to ask. This is just something to wrap your head around where you're going and while you're trying to do it. I would actually craft a day in the life. What is it going to feel like to work in this organization when we're done? When we've got this sort of knowledge management. Um, initiative and programs. And we're, and we're there. What will it feel like to work here? What does it mean when I come into the office and I open up my browser? What will I see? What kind of information will be will I be able to get to? I, and I think it's really helpful to describe what it's going to feel like in addition so that you can then um, start plotting. How are we going to get there? What will we focus on first? And that's not the only thing you can do, but it is a way to kind of wrap everyone's head around Where are we going and why are we doing this?
0: I I know you're asking for a wrap up, but, you know, that just sparked a question for me. Right. After I capture all this knowledge, that point about now, what do my coworkers, how, how do they leverage this? Management knowledge that I've built up and is being managed, yeah. Put it into practice. I guess can be another whole big uh, engagement of its own, right? I mean, that's not. But that's my whole. That's the
4: point of this. That's the point of the story. So I, I get an assignment. I need to figure it out. Instead of thinking I'm going to break down a wall to make this happen, my first reaction should be, "Hey, is there a door?" You know, has someone else already done this? So my first reaction should be I'm going to go to the um, I don't know, whatever we're calling our internet. I'm going to see or whatever our asset knowledge assets are. I'm going to see. Have we ever done this before? Who's an expert in it? Let me get smart before I get started. And so just sort of describing sort of how we're going to be working differently and what that's going to feel like. I think that may address what you're um, suggesting, Paul.
2: I think if you're starting it on Monday, don't underestimate the power of community and the communities you've got. Just spark up some communities or discover the communities you've got and set yourself the task of fostering, nurturing, controlling conversations within those communities, right? And taking a rather organic approach to all this. Think about the power of stories and the power of storytelling and story discovery. They, they are the secret source to every metric, Right. So if you're going to start something on Monday, spin yourself some community groups up or discover the ones you've got, inject your way in there, try nurture, control, conversation, start helping promoting what they're doing and taking people along with the journey. Then you can do some of the bigger picture stuff that Susan's been talking on about. But until you just have those communities of interest, you, you, you've not really got
3: a great building block to work from. Fixer. No, I don't have any, any final words. I think, yes, Paul alluded to, we could probably have a full episode, an additional episode with Sue and Simon here. I think it's so much interesting stuff we're talking about. And, and yeah, and yeah. I don't think this is the end of the discussion. I think Project Cortex is going to be interesting to see where, where it ends up. And, and hopefully, we can have Simon and Sue back once we actually can talk a little bit more about what, what, in, what is in Project Cortex and when, once it's released in the wild and how, how that can help our organizations.
1: I agree. I agree. There are lots and lots of parts of today's conversation. I'd like to spend a lot more time unpicking. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time, panel, and um, we will speak to listeners soon. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks all.
3: Thank bye bye. Bye.
0: The New Habits Podcast is produced by add-in 365 Thank you to Victor Villan for participating. Please leave a review in iTunes along with a five-star rating. We appreciate your support. Thank you for listening.